you call me? Tramp. Well, you, did. you don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. But I'll tell you one doggone thing. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm a on any given night in 1969, songs like Tramp by Otis Redding and Carla Thomas could be heard blaring from a jukebox inside the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan's Greenwich Village. The Stonewall was a place of refuge for gay men and women at a time when the city was cracking down hard on gay bars and homosexual life. There had been little resistance to the harassment until a police raid at the Stonewall in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. On this morning's show, we're looking back at this turning point in the struggle for gay rights. In just a moment, we'll catch up with a man who spent 10 years researching and writing a book on the uprising. Also today, New York City's Gay Men's Chorus drops by WFUV's Studio A, for an interview and performance. Glad you're with us for Cityscape. First this morning, Tales of Rebellion. David Carter spent a decade researching and writing a book on the Stonewall Riots. I caught up with him outside the historic bar to talk about the events that launched the modern gay rights movement. The 1960s was probably the worst time for gay people in American history. Definitely the 50s and 60s were because of the Red Scare and while much of that had lifted, uh, the effects of the Red Scare had lifted for many other groups in the 1960s. That had not happened with gay people. In fact, you know, you say from the 1930s through the late 60s, laws got worse for gay people on the whole in the United States instead of better. You had um, a lot of uh, hysteria right after World War II, not only about communism, but also about child molestation. Uh, sex offenders, and the idea was that uh, anybody who was a homosexual would be a uh, mentally ill person, a, a sexual psychopath. Uh, they could have, uh, they could be detained for that reason, put in insane asylums against their will, uh, sterilized, lobotomized, castrated, all that happened. In 1966, you had over 100 uh, gay men on average each week get arrested in New York City. For what? Well, the charges would usually be lewd and lascivious conduct. What you had happen was you had policemen going out undercover, dressed in a provocative way, approach gay men, and then when there was any response at all, it didn't have to necessarily be a sexual response, uh, even a response that you know could be interpreted as possibly leading to something sexual, like, let's go have a cup of coffee together. Would you like to come over to my place and let's talk? That was grounds for an arrest. Is it true that in 1969, two men and two women couldn't dance together? That that was illegal? Well, you know, many of these laws about homosexuality we look at from the 1960s, it's, you have to make, if you want to be very precise about it historically, you'd make the distinction between de jure and de facto law. You know, there was not a law against being a homosexual. There's not a law against running a gay bar. There's not a law against gay men dancing together or holding hands. But de facto, yes, uh, you could be arrested for holding hands or for dancing in public, and that could be grounds for shutting down a bar because if you had homosexuals there, that was proof it was catering to a degenerate crowd, which was grounds for the state liquor authority to yank the gay bar's licenses. The Stonewall Bar across the street here was raided quite frequently in the 1960s, right? That's right. I would uh, estimate it was averaged about, uh, it was probably raided on an average about once a month. Who ran the Stonewall Bar in 1969? 
Well, it was run by the same people who ran it when it opened. It was, you know, the, it was a mafia club. Now, uh, there was one figure uh, very prominent who was associated by the name of Ed Murphy. I don't know if he was there at the beginning. He was certainly there before too much time had gone by, and he may have been there from the beginning. He ran a nationwide blackmail ring that targeted gay people. Despite the threat of police raids, despite the threat of blackmail, gay men and women found the Stonewall a place of solace? Well, yes, and that's, <laughs> that tells you right there how bad it was. And if anybody's doubting what we said earlier, how bad it was for people, uh, that this place, not only where blackmail was going on, but, you know, people were catching hepatitis because the, the mafia didn't care if their clients got hepatitis. They didn't provide proper running water. They would wash the uh, glasses out in a dirty tub. They would charge inflated prices on top. They would charge inflated prices to get in, then very inflated drink prices and you could be blackmailed, and yet still, it was a refuge. But the reason for that, you know, it's something that sounds impossible, you have to take a while to explain it all, but essentially, probably most customers, most of the time, were not harassed. And for some young people, I think in particular, who wanted a place to dance and they didn't have other places, there were a few places they could dance. It was probably the only place in town where its entire history, you could count on slow dancing together. So what happened here? on June 28, 1969, that sparked the riots? Well, there were many things that came together that night, but I think one of the most important things is that the homophile movement had been having some success in New York City. They had managed to stop police entrapment, and they'd begun to make some progress in legalizing gay bars. So people's hopes had risen. Uh, also, it was the late 1960s, and by this time you'd had not only the sexual revolution, but the feminist revolution. And so when there were a series of raids at the end of June 1969, and the Stonewall was raided twice in one week, and it was during a re-election campaign, I think gay people all very understandably assumed this was a police crackdown, and they'd gone too far to tolerate it. Is it possible that the raid was aimed at the Mafia? Oh, I believe it was saying that the Mafia. You know, Seymour Pine has told me, you know, he only came to Manhattan a few months before he raided the Stonewall Inn. Uh, he told me that he was ordered to close it down because they had found a blackmail operation uh, that is still in many bonds and securities from houses on Wall Street. This had happened because of blackmail, and it had been traced to the Stonewall Inn. Uh, this was uh, Ed Murphy's classic modus operandus. Uh, I've got other evidence of various kinds supporting Seymour Pine's statement that this is why he did it. I believe it. But at the same time, even if that's why he did it, the first of all, this wasn't announced to the public. And the gay, gay people had no reason then to conclude other than what they did conclude. They could not conclude anything else on the basis of what they, their past experience and their present knowledge at the time. And then even if the intent of the police action uh, was to break the link between the mafia and their uh, homosexual targets, gay people were caught in the crossfire. You know, they had very few places to go. And so, you know, if a place you're going is shut down and you're roughed up in the process, then how can you expect somebody to appreciate that? So what do we know about who threw the first punch, so to speak? See, a question like that tends to presuppose that there was a first uh, 
active resistance from which everything else sprang. As I reconstructed what happened that evening, it was like a very, it was a very gradually mounting escalation of resistance on the part of the crowd. First, simply verbal. Maybe a little slowness in getting your ID out for the police. Collecting a crowd out front. So it was, a, it was an escalation of actions, just as there was an escalation in anger that night. It's a complex, somewhat long process. I won't try to take you through the whole thing right now. But the most significant resistance that came first on the inside was from uh, transvestites. They were among the first to resist outside. A lesbian fought with the police inside the bar and outside the bar. She played a key role in inciting the right. In other words, when people saw the way she was being uh, mistreated by the police outside the Stonewall bar, and they were already at a point where they were pretty angry about it, and that set the right off. So this lesbian deserves a lot of credit. At the same time, the first people who apparently got really physical and attacking the police outside were the homeless gay street youth, who were probably at that point more in the park behind us rather than in the bar across the street. How violent did the situation get? It got very violent. Uh, the person who led the raid, Seymour Pine, actually wrote the uh, manual for hand-to-hand -hand combat used by the uh, United States in World War II. And he fought in that war at times with Charles Smythe, who was his co-commanding officer that night. Seymour uh, Pine told me that he never felt more afraid for his life than he felt that night inside the Stonewall Inn. And he told me, not only did he tell me that he was uh, never more in fear of his life than he had, or never feeling more fear than he ever felt, that night in June of 1969. But his co-commander, Charles Smythe, told Newsweek magazine, he said three weeks later, he was his body was still shaking. That's how great the fear he was feeling was. So let me understand the scene then. The police barricaded themselves inside the bar at some point during that night? Yes. Uh, this was after the, the lesbian had the fight with the police in full view of everyone. They put her in the back of the patrol wagon. She escaped. They called her. They put her back in the second time. She escaped again. The third time, the police are getting fed up now. They, they pick her up in the heaver and bodily. And that's what that brutality of that was what set the crowd off. Just about the time the patrol wagon was about to leave full of prisoners and liquor, confiscated liquor from inside the bar. And Pine saw that the crowd was beginning to turn on him and see all the police officers in the pre six precinct were leaving. He still had prisoners inside the bar, so they had to come back. And he realized that if they stayed out on the sidewalk, you know, they could be uh, in a, a lot of danger, perhaps danger of losing their lives. So that's why they retreated inside the Stonewall Inn, because of that fear. And at that moment, the crowd went wild. They realized that they had the upper hand, and that's when they that was when the apogee of violence was reached. How big was that crowd? How many people were out here? Well, it was the, the streets were crammed. You know, it's you know obviously through the night the the crowd grew. You know, it probably started with 50 or 75. Then passersby joined in, and then you had some gay people went to the phones. Uh, I've heard reports that are probably true that some people ran to other bars or neighborhood restaurants that were gay and said, "Come, you know, there's a, the, the Stonewall's on its life is on the line. You got to come defend the Stonewall." I would say probably both on Friday night, Saturday night, and the last night, Wednesday night, that is the first, the second, and the sixth nights, 
On all those nights, I'm sure you had at least a thousand people and probably sometimes, I would imagine on Saturday you probably had at times a couple thousand of people here in the area. So the uprising lasted for six nights? That's right. Yeah, the, the uprising went on six nights. The largest nights were nights one, two, and six. The third night, Sunday, was in between. It wasn't a huge crowd, enormous like you had nights one, two, and six. Nights four and five, you had almost nobody, very, very few people. It was sporadic on those nights. How did the media cover Stonewall? Well, you know, most people today, uh, what you'll read in most accounts, will say that the media didn't cover it or covered it, you know, very minor way. That is not true. There were several articles in the New York Times. Um, there were articles in the New York Post, the New York Daily News. There was a report on national television. There were a lot of radio reports. How quickly would you say the momentum from that night was bottled in terms of moving the gay rights movement along? I would say it was bottled efficiently and right away. I mean, because, I mean, actually, you know, see, the organizing started during the Stonewall riots. During the riots, there was discussion about how do we keep this going? How do we make something of this? And after they were over, they continued meeting. It took um, less than a month after the riots ended for the uh, organization to find a name for itself, the Gay Liberation Front. But they were doing actions even before that. Their first public action was a march in honor of the Stonewall riots. They gathered in Washington Square Park, speech, rally, and then they marched right here where we're standing to honor the Stonewall riots on their one-month anniversary. David Carter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, George. Happy 40th Stonewall anniversary. <laughs> David Carter wrote Stonewall, the riot that sparked the gay revolution. It's published by St. Martin's Press. I'm having a vision, I suddenly see it, the magnitude of you people in love. How could I have missed it? It had to have been there, but I needed you to show me. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. The New York City Gay Men's Chorus has been singing loud and proud for nearly three decades. Today, the chorus has more than 220 members. Not long ago, the chorus introduced a new quartet of singers called Broadway Voices. The group puts a unique twist on the usually co-ed musical theater songbook. The singers dropped by WFUV's Studio A earlier this week, along with their musical director and accompanist. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey, hi, hi there. Doing good. Let's go around the room, introduce yourself, tell us how long you've been with the chorus, and what you do for a living. What's your day job? Why don't we start right here on the end? My name is Eric Sajasi. I sing tenor to upper in the chorus. Um, I've been with the chorus since fall of 2007, um, and my day job um, consists of human resources roles in strategy for investment banking. My name is Phil Zipkin. Uh, I've been with the chorus for about four years. In that time, I've been with a group called Uptown Express as well as Broadway Voices, and uh, my day job is I work for Robert Half International as an executive ass assistant. I am Dan Bailey. I've been in the chorus the longest, I think 14 or 15 years. <laughs> I started when I was four. Nice. And uh, <laughs> yeah, watch it. Um, I am a tenor too, opera as well, like Eric. And uh, what do I do during the day? I work with the corporate travel management field, which is all about uh, corporations and managing their corporate travel spend. And my name is Sinelius Kendrick-Smith. I've been with the chorus since spring of 2003. I, too, was in Uptown Express and now Broadway Voices. And my day job, I'm a director, senior portfolio manager for Deutsche Bank. I'm in their asset management group. 
And over here on the keys. My name's Charlie Beale. I'm the artistic director of New York City Cayman's Chorus. This is my day job. (laughs) 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 So that's simple. Dan, you've been with the chorus the longest, so let me ask you the question about the history of the Gay Men's Chorus here in New York City. The chorus has been around about 20, we're just finishing our 29th season. Next year is our 30th anniversary. Uh, Singing at major venues like Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, and so forth, but also doing an awful lot of outreach to community groups, centers, fundraisers, uh, I would say halfway houses to... um, old folks' homes, that sort of thing, wherever we're asked to sing to reach out and build bridges and um, celebrate who we are is what we do. We do generally three major concerts a year uh, at the major venues, holiday concerts, spring, and, and during Pride. And then we do associated gigs around the rest of the year. Broadway Voices specifically goes out and does a lot of the smaller gigs because when people ask for the chorus to sing, they don't really generally understand that they're asking to move 220 guys to a small stage. It doesn't work. So we're portable. We're, we're easy. We don't take a lot of space. We don't need a lot of work. We're ready to go. Although the chorus does do you know, gigs with 60, 70 people. We just sang at uh, Bloomingdale's Pride. They had an a in-store event before the store opened last week. So we sing and things like that as well. So it's a lot of fun. I think what's important to, um, to mention is that um, the chorus is particularly New York City Gamers Chorus was sort of born out of the response to the crisis of um, HIV and AIDS 30 years ago. Um, not only this chorus, but choruses like San Francisco, LA, and Seattle. So it was an opportunity for um, those affected or those who are infected to have a place to go, to, to sing, to heal themselves, and to reach out to the community to tell their stories about what's going on. So in my opinion, that's sort of the genesis of a lot of this um, and sort of the, the movement. And then um, over the years, um, as we sort of moved away in terms of being able to deal and manage HIV, um, it's become something else and developed into not only a family of singers, but also an opportunity to reach out to the community and develop something there. Do you see yourselves as serving a larger purpose that you're doing your part to promote a positive image of gay men in society? Is that part of this as well? The chorus is very, as non-threatening as you can get or a bunch of guys standing in tuxes or similar outfits like that on stage singing beautiful music. What, you know, how threatening can that be to anybody? We change lives no matter where we sing and no matter how often we sing. We touch lives that we know about and that we don't know about. I'd like to just challenge that just for a minute because I think that um, we do threaten certain pockets or certain people or certain communities, and I think that's a good thing. And I think what's important about the dynamics that have changed in um, for the chorus now is that under Charlie's leadership, we are reaching out to various communities that probably wouldn't have been exposed and probably aren't necessarily as welcoming. I mean, I get Dan's point, and I agree with him, but I do think that um, there are, you know, those who will feel threatened by us, but if given the opportunity to listen and to hear, um, they'll be able to better understand what this chorus is about and the mission and, mission and the message that he wants to, to convey to others. And I also think that those who see the chorus and want to join, they feel a sort of, you know, are threatened as well. They're sort of unsure, and um, um, but once they do become involved with the organization, it is very welcoming and supportive and loving. So it's a cult. Well, I've heard Basically. you guys rehearse. You are threatening. If you want them to join the chorus, <laughs> you know, you're a hard act to follow. Right, right, right. <laughs> How well, competitive is it to get in, Charlie? Well, Charlie. Um, that's a hard question to answer. I, I mean, you have to be able to sing. I mean, I think the days are gone when we would accept anybody um, because we have very high standards and we sing very well, and it's. There's meaning to everything we do. It's, it's a very important, and we hope that comes across, that we, we connect with, with audiences through the way that we sing for that reason, I think, even 
because we come from all over the place and all that stuff. And the other thing I, I, I wanted to say was just about um, one of our mantras is to sing in places where we don't feel comfortable. Such uh, as? Well, even shops, even on the street, even in areas of New York City where homophobia is alive and kicking and the idea, literally kicking, and the, <laughs> the idea that that we uh, initially, I think there was a phase where the chorus sang mainly in Manhattan, and Manhattan's a. I, I remember a younger guy. We had uh, some sessions in the uh, last year where um, I was just new to the group, and I was just asking people, you know, what's important, what are the values. I'm obviously, you can tell from my voice, not necessarily a native New Yorker, and <laughs> uh, one of the younger guys who just joined the group said, "Well, you know, if we stand up and all we say is we're here, we're queer, and we're in Manhattan, everyone else is just going to go. Well, so are we." <laughs> like that's not a really very important statement and we're very lucky we can actually give a vision of a very very tolerant you know forward-looking diverse uh, kind of lifestyle for for gay men if we stay in manhattan the other side of the coin is that you know if you go north of 96th street or you go into the bronx or you even go to staten island we sang at the staten island uh, uh pride a couple of weeks back it's when you go to those places and you realize that there's still a lot of work to do. It's not necessarily uncomfortable in a very direct way, but people are puzzled. People haven't seen anything like us before. People come to it fresh. Um, and that's what we're about. We're, we're about singing to people who haven't heard us before. Well, let's hear you right now. This is a number written by Richard Maltby Jr. and David Shire from their review called Starting Here, Starting Now. Uh, was recorded by a number of people, most specifically Barbara Streisand.
New York City Gay Men's Chorus. Now, presumably, you guys worked all day. Where do you come up with the energy to do this at night? Red Bull. (laughs) (laughs) We're all hams. Yeah, we've got a lot of pork up here. Uh, (laughs) I think all of us have performing backgrounds, and it's something we love doing, and it's like energizes us throughout the course of the day and the week to do stuff like this extra. It's wonderful. It's actually a very interesting story. One of the, when I do auditions for the chorus, the first question I ask, more as a warm-up than anything else, is, like, why are you here? Why New York City Gay Men's Chorus? And, and tell me about yourself as a singer. And so many people tell the story that they really wanted to be a professional singer. They had a lot of skills. They came to New York as gay men, and they found it was harder than they thought, and inevitably people fail. Even if they're great, they can just have bad luck. And then they join New York City Gay Men's Chorus and, uh, you know, get a day job doing something else and, and uh, settle down, hopefully happily. And, uh, but, and the chorus is the place where they kind of hold their passion for singing and for, for who they are, in a way. So it's, it's, it serves a role. But I think that's a particularly New York City thing. Let's yes. hear some more, shall we? Okay. Shall we do doors next? Doors, sure. Yeah. Well, what do you know? 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 In front of me now is an open door. I'm moving ahead, not sure of the way, and yet there's a Your life is out racing you, they're dead ahead, another one's facing you. Seems like at times they're practically chasing you, everywhere another door. One day the doors are locked and you're sick of them, next day they're yours and you have your pick of them. Finding the proper key, that's the trick of them, every day another door. Doors to a place that no one knows, doors that are openings, doors that close, doors that you pass through every day. Turn into doors that bar the way. Doors to keep out the chill of night Doors to keep secrets locked up tight Just when you have things set When it's all in place When your life is good There's another Doorways are good They can be enlightening Doorways can change you Which isn't frightening So tell me why my stomach is tightening Looking at another door Doors can be wide Yes, that can be verified Moving outside the air can be rarefied I want to go, but why am I terrified Looking at another door Something I want and haven't got Open the threshold, there's my shot Will I go in there? I will not Maybe a brand new job awaits Twenty or thirty different face I'll be in charge at last, get my life in shape And when all that ends, there's another What's in the skies from Boston to Florida? High rises rising, each being horrid 
Besides, it's you in a corridor, nothing but a wall of doors. What would you give to see what is hiding there? All kinds of people just coinciding there. What kind of secret lives are residing there, riding up behind those doors? What's going on inside those rooms? Kinky behavior, one presumes. Here there's a spinster with her cats. Next door a kid who sleeps on mats. Here there's a family bland as pie. Next door a girl who's once a guy. What would you give to buy some electric eye that would let you spy on what's behind those people you never met who are not like you, who are just like you, who are behind those? Just when you have things set, when it's all in place, when your life is good, there's another. The song is called Doors. Where is that song from? It's another Maltby Shire song. It's from their uh, musical review called Closer Than Ever. Where can people see you next? Where are you going to go? All over. <laughs> well, we're available. We, we have a new Book season us. plan. We have a new season plan which we haven't announced yet. But, yeah, in September we'll be in the fall. Go, go look on our website, mycgmc.org. Okay. That'd be the best thing. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, thank you for having, having us. us. It's been great. Dan Bailey, Eric Sajazi, Cornelius Kendrick Smith, Phil Zipkin, and Charles Beale are with the New York City Game Men's Chorus. If you didn't catch it a moment ago, their website is nycgmc.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Mary Wilson and Ellen Burke. Have a great weekend. 